Good to have you with us at the Antioch campus this morning. If you would please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. And while you're doing that here, I just want to say to those who are tuning in and watching us online, if you're on Facebook right now, you can hear but not see. Uh, we know about it. Uh, we cannot fix it at the moment. Uh, that's being worked on. Uh, both audio and video are available online from our website if you want to go there. But frankly, this is going to be a whole lot better if you can't see me anyway. These people here can't get out. So, uh, we are, are going to dive right in. I appreciate you all being here this morning. Hope you've found Exodus chapter 13. I believe that one of the greatest obstacles keeping skeptics from finding salvation and keeping believers from finding daily joy in their salvation is what I would call a loss of wonder. Skeptics have a hard time letting go of their belief that all of reality can be reduced to what can be measured, what can be plotted, what can be formularized. The supernatural is just irrational, and mystery, if it exists, is simply a, a riddle remaining to be solved. And so, the world is stripped of wonder, and as a result, skeptics never stop to consider the existence of God because they aren't willing to dethrone the God of their own reason. So, as we journey through a passage of Scripture today that outlines, explains, relates to us the greatest miracle in the Old Testament, the, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, recounted and celebrated almost more times than you can number in the Psalms and among the prophets. As we go through it, skeptics will find it nearly impossible to enter into the wonder of God's miraculous redemption of Israel from Egyptian slavery through a miraculous sea crossing. And they'll just be nice, but they won't enter in. But the loss of wonder poses a different problem for those who are believers. Uh, believers long ago accepted that reality can't be reduced to what can be measured or plotted or formularized. The supernatural to a believer is reasonable and is accepted. Yet still their lives are often characterized by a loss of wonder because what we long ago have accepted has become for us very, very ordinary. God acting miraculously to save His people? Sure. Next. It's just what we expect. So let me ask this of the skeptics present this morning. Let me ask that you allow yourself to consider the existence of a being that transcends the boundaries of your reason. Consider for at least a brief time this morning the implications of a God whose actions are not limited by observed laws and whose actions towards those he loves is not generic but intensely personal. I want you to, as we deal with this this morning, ask yourself, what difference would it make for you if the Redeemer that we see on the pages of Scripture this morning actually existed? Not asking you to go all the way and say he does. I'm just saying, what difference would it make for you if the Redeemer that we see on the pages of Scripture this morning actually existed. But for those who are believers and present this morning, let me ask you to do this. Let me ask you to see this very familiar story with fresh eyes, 
with eyes of wonder. Pretend you don't know what's going to happen next. What difference would it make for you if the Redeemer that we see on the pages of Scripture this morning was as mighty as the text portrays Him to be and just as much a presence in your life? What difference would it make? I think in both cases, skeptic and believer alike, that doing such a thing by just opening our minds to the possibility that God is everything He portrays Himself to be here would cause us to see this God in a radically new light and to see His redemption of us in a radically new light. The first thing I think that we would see if we did that little exercise this morning is this. I think we'd see that the Lord's redemption is transformational. If God is the God He appears to be in our text this morning, it would mean that His redemption of us was transformational. So, I've got to do this now. For all of the talk of the extraordinary that I've done so far this morning, we're going to begin our passage uh, of Scripture, our time together in the Word, with a passage of Scripture uh, that causes you to give up reading the Bible frankly. It's, it's going to cause your eyes to glaze over and to roll back in your head, and you're going to think, that's exactly why I never have made it through reading the Bible in a year, that kind of thing. But I want you to hang with me. I want you to hang with me as I read the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 13, and let's see. You're going to think I'm crazy. You do already, so it's no big whoop. But I want to I see if, if if we can catch a glimpse of the wonder that these verses are opening up for us. Verse 1, chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be as a sign on your hand and as memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt." You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. And you're going, yeah, I don't get it. I just don't get it. What's, what's so wondrous and wonderful about that? I will forgive you. I mean, I, I get how it could definitely seem that way. But let's do a deeper dive into these verses for just a minute because there are multiple layers of meaning that are hidden to us because it's so far removed from our daily existence. But all of these layers of meaning feed into one general truth that is being conveyed. So let's start peeling those layers back. First, let's pay attention to the timing of it all. 
What doesn't make sense to you, but does if you know the Jewish calendar, is that all of this was to take place in the spring. Now, the most obvious reason that all of this was to take place in the spring is because the event of the Exodus, the people of Israel leaving Egyptian slavery, took place in the spring, our late March or early April. So the feast that is being discussed here is to be in the spring because that's when the event that it remembers took place. But there's something else to this that is lost on our cityfied eyes. You know, we're, we're not agrarian. We don't make our living off the land or on the farm. And the thing that's lost on our eyes is that springtime on the farm is baby time. It's the time when livestock tend to give birth. So these instructions are to take place during a season of reflecting on new life. The annual cycle of new birth in agrarian life now has a reminder of the cycle of new birth in a person's life as Israel was brought into life by, Israel, by God through the Exodus. So that's the first piece of it. Second piece... The sacrificial death of the firstborn is said here to be an, a reminder of the deliverance that was given to Israel, accomplished through the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And then the third thing was something that we didn't actually read. I, I, the whole section actually goes through verse 16, and I didn't read that because most of it's redundant, but there's a piece of it that's not redundant at all. If you look at verse 12, it says that you are to set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And then this, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, break its neck. And then here's the point, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, that's, that's something that we would tend to overlook, but what we are being told is that the life of every firstborn male, from livestock to human, was to be sacrificed to the Lord, but, but there would be a substitute as a sacrifice for the firstborn human child. The death of a lamb served as a substitute for the first male born to a Jewish family as an annual reminder of the deliverance of Israel from God's judgment on the firstborn of Egypt. That it was, if you'll remember, accomplished through the substitutionary death of a lamb whose blood painted in obedience over the doors of obedient houses would signal to God that faithful night that the price for sin against God had already been paid in that house. Now, that's a lot of stuff that I've just given you. Let me just break it down to you as simply as possible. When you bring all of this together, the command to annually remember the Lord's deliverance and the continual offering of the firstborn to the Lord and the substitutionary death of a lamb for a firstborn Jewish male, it's all simply communicating this one thing. All of Israel down to the livestock, belonged to the Lord by right of his redemption. His act of redemption gave him, as the Lord, sole claim on Israel's life. They owed their very existence to him. They would not exist apart from him. His redemption had given them life. That idea 
is to be baked into their cultural memory for the rest of their lives. And that's why those verses exist. You should never forget God is saying in these 10 verses we read and the rest that we didn't, that you owe everything, absolutely everything to me. Now, here's the thing. The exodus of Israel from Egypt prefigures our ultimate deliverance from captivity to sin accomplished by Jesus. No less than Jesus himself said that very thing. Everything about the exodus is amplified in Christ's redemption of us. He has so claim as a result of his saving of us on our life. We owe him our very existence because of his redemption. And because of his redemption, we have life. Scriptures don't tell us that before Christ we were weak in our trespasses and sin. They don't tell us that we were sick in our trespasses and sin. The Scriptures tell us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin before Christ. So the transformational nature of our relationship with Jesus is no less than the transformation from being dead to being alive. But a strange thing happens on our journey from spiritual death to spiritual life. What Christ has done for us mysteriously ceases to take our breath away. In fact, the 30-second riff I did before I got here should have had everybody in here standing up and shouting. We owe everything to Jesus. And we were like going, yeah, I know that. I get it. It should take our breath away. So what's happened? We've, we've lost a sense of wonder as it relates to our salvation. I know I've shared this with you before, um, but I'll never forget the lesson, and I, and I don't want you to forget this lesson either. A college buddy of mine, guy wound up being a groomsman in my wedding, didn't find Christ until he was sitting alone on the tailgate of his pickup truck in an empty field in southwestern Oklahoma after a drunken night celebrating his birthday with some friends. And alone and buzzed completely out of his mind, he was sober enough to reflect back on what had transpired that evening and just was gripped with the thought, there's got to be more to life than this. And there coming out of the fog of drunkenness, the Lord redeemed him. And he shared that story with me. And he told me that story because my story is so different. I, I, I'd grown up in a Christian home. My, my friends were Christian friends. If there had been Christian clothes, I would have had Christian clothes. Everything about my life had centered on Christ in the church. I'd come to Christ before I'd engaged in, in teenage regrets. And Alan, my friend, could tell just in how I talked and how I treated people that I had lost my sense of wonder at what Christ had done to save me. And in trying to share that with me, he told me something I hope to never forget. He said, Derek, the difference between you and me is that I remember being lost. And I didn't have that sense. I was, but I didn't have that sense of lostness. What he's telling me, what he was telling me is that, Derek, my salvation still takes my breath away. And you take yours for granted. You take it for granted. So here's why 
these verses whose reading and explanation by me caused your eyes to glaze over. Look, I do this for a living. I can read a room. Here's why we need to pay attention to them. God knew that Israel would take their existence as a nation for granted. And so he built reminders into the rhythms of their life designed to make sure they never forgot the gravity and the transformational character of their redemption and his sole claim on their lives as a result of the Lord's redemption. What do we do then? What do we do as Christians who've had the fullest experience of Exodus? What do we do to make sure that we never forget the radical nature of redemption that we have in Jesus and the sole claim on our lives that he has as a result? I want you to keep that question in mind. We're going to circle back to it in just a minute after I show you one more thing about the Redeemer and the redemption he provides. We see as we continue to reflect with an open mind on these verses that the Lord's redemption is complete. And now we get to the crossing of the Red Sea. It's an extended event that run essentially two full chapters once you count the song of praise that concludes it. So we can't read all of it this morning, um, but there are two aspects of it that I want to highlight for you as we think about it. First, that it was this crossing was the Lord's doing and only the Lord's doing in ways that you might not normally think about. I want you to look at verse 17 of Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Keep that in mind. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So that's pretty simple. The rest of chapter 13 lets us know that God himself was leading the people as a pillar of fire or a pillar of uh, smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. But our verses tell us that in leading the people, he didn't lead the Jews on the most direct route. And there was a very practical reason that he didn't lead them in that way. The most direct route to the promised land would take them right up against the Philistines, who would not be fired up at all that a large people group was on their borders, and it would provoke a military skirmish with the people of Israel that they weren't yet emotionally or spiritually ready to face. But there's more to this inefficient route to the promised land, as we will see at the beginning of verse 14, or chapter 14. Look at chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of cities that I will not pronounce. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, I hope you've been able to pick up what we've read there. God hasn't just led the people the long way around because he's protecting the people from fighting battles that they weren't in the headspace or the heart space to fight. He's led them the way he is leading them to make them appear confused, even leading them to reverse course, to double back on themselves in order to intentionally cause 
Pharaoh to believe that Israel was lost, to entice him to come out to slaughter the Jews in order to slaughter Pharaoh's army. God is drawing Pharaoh out to his doom to show Egypt that there is no God at all like him. Do you see what I mean when I say that all of this was God's doing in ways that we might not notice at first? But even on a deeper level than this, God is orchestrating these events in order to demonstrate conclusively for Israel that there is no God like him. Because there would be trial after trial, there would be difficulty after difficulty that would come their way, and if they didn't have an appropriate picture of God, they would, they would collapse like a house of cards. In fact, they did all the time, and God said, get up, and just drug them to the promised land. So, things go as planned, obviously. I mean, the plan was the Lord's, and the Egyptians began to bear down on the Jews, and the Jews are understandably panicked. But I want you to see what uh, Moses says as the Egyptians are bearing down on them in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not and stand firm and see, that the, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. The, the purpose of this event from the side of Israel was for them, again, to see that there's no God like God, and he himself will defeat the Egyptians by delivering Israel through the sea and then bringing that sea back on the Egyptian army and drowning them, which leads to this miraculous summary statement at the end of chapter 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Those two verses highlight the complete nature of the Lord's redemption of Israel. First, it was completely his doing. Israel had nothing to do with this except to obey what the Lord was saying and to trust his provision of a path through the sea. They didn't, nor could they, lift a finger to defend themselves or deliver themselves. If they were going to be delivered, God put them in a situation where they understood that it was all completely the Lord's doing. But it was also the complete and ultimate defeat of their Egyptian adversary. When the Jews had left Egypt, Egypt was wounded and defeated, but it was still a threat. They still had Pharaoh's hardened heart, and they still had Pharaoh's armies, and they still had Pharaoh's iron chariots hanging over their heads. They were free, but they weren't yet delivered. And it wasn't until the waters collapsed on their foes that the Lord was able to truly demonstrate that he had redeemed them, that, they had, that he had made them his very own, and that there was no God like the God they were following. And again, the New Testament says everything about the Exodus prefigures Christ's redemption of us while enslaved by our sin. We in our sin can't deliver ourselves. And even if we could break free for a moment, the, the sin of Egypt is always going to pull us back. But because of the finished work of Christ, we are completely and totally free. And so the bottom line of this entire event for the unbelieving Egyptians and the enslaved Jews was to prove that there was no God like the Lord. And the only appropriate response to such a Redeemer is to gaze at Him in wonder. I want you to stop and think about it. Had you been there 
if you could have put your phone down enough to stop taking pictures of it, had you been there and just stepped back and said, what am I experiencing right now? It would have dropped you to your knees. You would have been overcome with awe and wonder. And when you saw what the Lord had done for you to save you, you would realize that God could save you from anything. And if you'd been a, a skeptical Egyptian back home and heard the story of what had happened to your mighty army, you would have been shaken to your core and you would have said, there's no God like that God. And even if you weren't following that God, you'd be overcome with wonder. So let's return to our earlier question. What do skeptics do to open themselves up to believing in a God capable of what we've seen this morning? And what do believers do to make sure that we never forget the radical redemption we have in Jesus and the sole claim he has in our lives as a result? Here is the answer to both questions. We must faithfully and regularly carve out time to worship the Lord. Skeptic and believer, we have, to, we have to carve out time to worship the Lord. For the skeptics in this room, here's how that might happen. It might happen by you taking the same path that C.S. Lewis took. Lewis, who you probably heard of, author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and many other books, had grown up in a Christian environment but had forsaken all of it after experiencing the, the horrors of trench warfare in World War I and surrounding himself by, with skeptics throughout his entire academic career. He reached a point where he didn't believe that it was philosophically responsible to believe that there was a God of any kind. But after a long into-the-night discussion, which was the capstone of many other such discussions, two friends, one of whom was J.R.R. Tolkien of the Lord of the Rings fame, after those discussions, Lewis opened himself up to the idea, not that Jesus died for his sin, but that there was a God. I mean, he became convinced that it would be philosophically irresponsible to deny that there was a God. And so, internalizing that thought, he thought, well, I guess I need to get to know him. And so that night, he began to pray, not in Jesus' name. He wasn't buying into all that yet. He just began to pray to the God that existed. And eventually, in part because of the continued discussions of those two friends, he found his way to the God of the Exodus and the God of the cross, and he became a follower of Jesus. So if you are a skeptic here this morning, prayer is what worship looks like like for you. If you can come to the point where you think there's a God, if you can get to the point where you think there's probably a God, then do an experiment and reach out to him. Reach out to him and let's just see where the experiment leads. But what about believers? What does worship look like for you? Well, let me challenge you with the idea that worship has nothing to do with music. And this is especially 
important for this campus to grasp as we begin searching for a man to lead us in worship when Pastor John assumes his new role as executive pastor full-time, which actually he's done. He's just doing two jobs full-time right now. This is going to be the first time in 16 years that we've been in this kind of search. And times are different than they were 16 years ago. Back, back then, rather than have the elders uh, as, as a part of the group, men, uh, my equals to go through and do all of this, it was just me. I was just a one-man search committee. But it's not like I didn't have help. I mean, I had lots of suggestions regarding uh, what I should be looking for. And they were all variations of the same theme. Find someone who will lead me to worship in my preferred musical style. Do that for me. So I had, I had folks coming up to me who'd say, we need, the, we need the lights and we need the fog and we need the darkened room and I need to be able to snap my finger all the way through it. We had that going on. We really did. And then I had others, primarily people who are in the service before this one, come up to me and say, we don't need those 7-Eleven songs. You know, seven words sung 11 times, you know, that kind of thing. That's what they said. I'm telling you, that was the exact quote, John. It's the exact quote. Exact quote. And I would say to him, I'd say, you're right. I, I want to sing those good gospel songs. Amen. Yeah, like blessed be the name, blessed be the name, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name, blessed be the name, blessed be the name of the Lord. Huh? Okay. The unspoken concern on both sides was that I can't worship effectively if the music isn't of a certain style and presented in a certain way, which just so happens to perfectly mirror your preferred style and presentation. Now, guess what? I have a preferred style. There is a certain kind of music that I like best when singing to the Lord. You have a preferred style. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we arrogantly, and I choose that word intentionally, when we arrogantly say that, that true worship is our kind of worship, what we are actually saying is, is that we worship our worship. We worship me. I'm a customer, and so appeal to me by giving me what I want to hear. And folks, I don't care how solemn you act or how high you jump or how much you snap your fingers or how much fog fills the room or how much the organ bellows. What you're calling worship is not worship. Because worship is beholding the wonder of the Lord. Not, not the, the wonder of who you are and your preferences. It has nothing to do with music. Music can help, obviously. But worship doesn't need music. It needs focus. It needs focus on the one being worshipped. And so we must regularly carve out time to gaze in wonder at the Lord and worship. And I do that multiple places. I do that in my brown chair by my fireplace every morning before people get up. Dogs get up. It's just Julie and I, so it's Julie and the dogs. I do that before they get up. I do it when I worship with my wife right over here in the 930 service. 
I do it when I gaze at the world around me and see the God behind the sunrise and the sunset and the, the nature that I like to spend time in. I behold the wonder and the majesty of the Lord and ascribe Him the worth He's due as a goal of my life. Because ours is a reality that can't be reduced to what can be measured and plotted and formularized. And the reason it can't be those things is because reality is rooted in a God who is transcendent. He's there to behold if we simply make time to look. And most importantly, He is there to behold in the salvation that He offers all of us freely through Jesus Christ. A salvation that's available to everybody in this room and a salvation that I think most of us, far too many of us, take for granted. And we don't need to do that anymore. We need to be mindful of the one who saved us and what he did to save us. With those things in mind, let's pray.